following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I'm going to invite you into Luke chapter 14. We're back into Luke now. And... It, it, I, I feel like a broken record every time I do this, and I tell Tim this every single time he asks me to preach. It, it, it is by far the most convicting experience that I go through in my life, period. Um, having to bring scripture when I myself feel so convicted by the words um, is kind of a painful process. And so as I've been digesting this scripture, um, I can... Uh, Assure you that I am coming to you with um, humble passion, um, being convicted by this this particular passage, um, and and I would ask you to really uh, dig deep and find where this applies in in your life. This is an incredibly applicable scripture to the Christian life. There there is no uh, there there should be no confusion about what this looks like in your daily life as a Christian. Starting in Luke chapter 14, I'm going to read just the first 14 verses. We're going to do the parable of the great feast next week. Tim is going to bring that message. 14 verse 1. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees. And the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, Is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Then he returned to them and said, Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit at the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to the host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous... God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Before I launch into this, I, I want to add a little caveat to the beginning of this. This passage is heavily communicated through action. But before we get into the actions that are described here, I want to make sure that you know that none of these will be possible outside of abiding relationship with Christ. It's not possible. So I've, I've created for you a warning label. Okay? Do not pursue action without for first pursuing spiritual relationship. 
The results could lead to a potentially irreversible false sense of security in a relationship that has yet to be initiated, and you'll most likely fail in your moral endeavor. Okay? So that's my warning for you today. Do not attempt this without a first pursuing Christ in an abiding relationship. These are not moral issues that Jesus is dealing here. These are spiritual issues. The moral applications are symptoms of the greater spiritual condition. So at the end of this, please do not walk away from here saying that Nate gave me the moral golden road to seeing salvation. This is done through spiritual relationship with our Creator. As Jesus is coming to this party, he walks in the front door, doesn't even get in the front door, and what does he see? He sees a man who's sick. This man clearly had all sorts of issues, but the main one being that he had a, a, a thing called dropsy, which is an old term for essentially just means swelling. It can be a really severe condition. It can be deadly, potentially. It can mean that you have heart disease or liver disease. It, it has all sorts of reasons that it exists. It, in and of itself, is not really a disease. It is a symptom. But as far as they knew in this time, it was a disease. So Jesus walks up to this man, and he sees this man with what they call dropsy. He's swollen, probably in a lot of pain. My guess is uh, by the severity of the description that he probably could not work. He could not take care of a family. He was not able to in any way care for himself or those around him. And he's sitting at the front door of this Pharisee's house. Now, Pharisees were probably, in fact, because this one was a leader, this, the Pharisees were quite wealthy back then. They had all the accoutrements that you could want. They were very well off. They had taken care of their family. They had nice houses. And it was very, very common for people in need to come and plant themselves in front of these houses with the hope that maybe somebody, a religious leader, might actually help them. As Jesus walks in, he sees this man and he asks a very, very pointed question. Real quick note here. Have you noticed how Jesus never actually gets invited twice to a Pharisee's house? He never gets a re-invite because he didn't even get in the front door without making his host upset. And he asks, is it against the law to heal a man on the Sabbath? Well, nobody answered. So Jesus looked with no answer, and he touched the man, and he healed him, and he sent him on his way. And still there was no answer. Jesus knew the answer. In chapter 13, that we went through not too long ago, one, day, one Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was able, unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath but the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. 
isn't it right that she will be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Jesus knew the answer to his question in chapter 14 before he asked it because he was just in the synagogue and asked the exact same question. And they gave him an answer. But again, Jesus chooses to heal on the Sabbath. This was not a question that Jesus actually wanted an answer to. This was making a point. This is like when your wife says, are you going to pick those up? She doesn't need an answer. She knows the answer. She's making a point that you need to pick those up. Jesus was making a point. He was saying that there was something wrong here. He was making an issue. Compassion should always be freely given because it was freely given to us. And it is always available. There is no reason to make a woman who has been bent over by an evil spirit for 18 years to wait another day before being released from that spiritual bondage. When you ask Christ for salvation because you realized your true need and he looked at you and said, eh, it's Sunday. Can I wait till tomorrow? How would you have understood your relationship with this creator if that was how it worked? No, it didn't work that way. When you needed Christ, he provided. He saved you. At the most inopportune time, in the middle of the night, in some who-knows-where village, at the most inconvenient time, Christ was there, and he saved you when you needed him. Because compassion is always freely given by our creator. And thus we are called to always give that compassion in return. There is no good or better time for a healing, or good or better time for compassion. The problem is here that the Pharisees have chosen to use the law, to manipulate the law to their great end. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't the right time. And Jesus is making a point of this, and he's saying, but if it was Sunday and your ox was dying because it personally benefits you, you would interpret the law a little bit differently, wouldn't you? Of course. And then being landowners and obviously livestock owners knew the value of these livestock and could not answer him in a way that was satisfactory. Jesus was making the clear and defined point here that the Pharisees were manipulating the law for their benefit. When it needed to be rigid for their benefit so that they had control and power, it was as rigid as could be. And when it needed to be flexible and pliable so that they could make a living, it was. Christ was making a point here that they were manipulating the law and withholding compassion from somebody in need, and they were doing it in the name of God. That is a terrible, sinful thing. And so as I look and I search my life, and I wonder where have I withheld compassion, where have I looked for convenience, where have I reinterpreted the law for my own benefit, unfortunately I can't come up with a clean slate. 
There are defined times in life where I have distinctly reinterpreted laws for my benefit. There are times in life where I know that I have distinctly withheld compassion because it was inconvenient for me to give it. And so like so many of the things in Luke, I find myself in the exact same place as a Pharisee. Living the life of a Pharisee. Who would God have me heal? Who is that person at my front door that I'm avoiding? Who is that person that God has put in my life that is not convenient for me? Well, Jesus doesn't stop there, obviously. He's determined to get uninvited from this party. So as soon as he gets inside and he sees everybody sitting around the tables and kind of manipulating and vying and jockeying for position at the table, he makes another point. See, what, the way that this would work is that at a party like this, it would be very well attended and there would be a large U-shaped table. And inevitably, the host would be at the very base of that U-shaped table and all the honored seats would be on either side of the host. And so what would happen is as people would come in, they would kind of jockey for position. They would try and get their way, weasel their way closer to the host, the, the seats of honor. Well, there, there's an inerrant problem with this in that culturally it is very, very common that the most honored guests would show up the latest. And so what would happen is everybody would get there and they'd all find their seats and then the three most honored guests would show up after all the jockeying had been done and the host would awkwardly go over to somebody that was sitting in an honored seat and say, sorry, this seat's taken. This seat is for a more honored guest than you. And that person would have to awkwardly get up and move, and inevitably there would be a commotion, and ultimately there would probably be fighting or arguments or backbiting or whatever you wanted to call it, simply out of positioning for the seat closest to the host. Well, Jesus knew this, and so he's sitting there. I'm just imagining him sitting in this room, looking over this crowd of people. And and you've all been to parties like this, right, where you see these people that just kind of like from one conversation to the other, and they're just kind of constantly jockeying for position, and they want the ear of the host, right? So they're slowly making their way. It's like a football game, slowly making their way up the field, trying to get the ear of the host. And Jesus is seeing this happen. And he says, those that will exalt themselves will fail. Those that will exalt themselves will not be exalted. But those that keep themselves low will be exalted. This is common for for Christ's language. This is how he came. He's a baby in a manger. He's not the exalted king and and politician that everybody thought that he was. He, He is somebody that comes in at a low position and makes a statement. And so that's what he's saying here. He's saying, don't jockey for position. Don't manipulate people for your own personal gain. Don't kick people down the line so that you can be a little bit closer to the host. Now, another real clear lesson here that, as Jesus is attempting to not ever get invited back again, um, so he drives this home and makes it very, very clear that he is dissatisfied with this situation. And then he turns to the host. Because he hasn't probably yet totally offended the host, right? So he offended the host at the front door, goes in, offends all the guests. Now we're going to take another stab at offending the host again. 
And he says, when you put on your luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, or rich neighbors. Don't invite them. For they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Real quick, this is not a justification for leaving people intentionally off the guest list because they're related to you. Okay, So for those of you that are looking for that justification, this is, this is not that. That was not the point. Okay, Also, those friends that you don't really like, this is also not a justification for leaving them off the list. What Jesus is saying is that you only invite people that can repay you. You invite your friends and your relatives and the people that you love because they can repay you, not just with money, but in reciprocal relationship. Maybe they're functional in a way that just makes it fun to be friends with them. Maybe they have cool toys. Newest iPad lets you play with it. Maybe they simply are just good conversationalists. Maybe you're comfortable with them. Those are not good reasons to invite somebody to dinner. Jesus is making it clear here that you invite people to dinner because you are there to serve, to exalt Christ at your dinner table. And the people that will best do that are the needy, the poor, the dysfunctional, the hurt, the ailing, those that are socially dysfunctional, those that maybe aren't that much fun to have around. Because your reward is in heaven. Invite the needy to your feast. Now, as I was trying to figure out how to apply this, I just, re- I just started thinking, just in the most basic sense of application for this, who do I invite to family dinners, to meals, Well, I invite the people that I want to be there. Now, real quick note here. It is not an evil thing to invite people that you like to dinner. Okay, That that is not what we're saying here. What it is, is evil to only invite people that can repay you because you are searching for your repayment here on earth and not in heaven. That is sinful. And so as I'm looking through this and I'm wondering, well, first off, when was the last time that I had somebody over to my house? And was it for a reason that was selfless? Or was it because I wanted to enjoy that person's company? Well, Christ is saying here that that is not a good reason. Now, honestly, I I don't do this well. This This is me being upfront with you. This is what the scriptures say. Please do not look at my life as a model on how to do this. Um, Please keep me accountable. And I encourage you to look at your own life and ask the question, why am I engaging with this person? Is it for selfish reasons? Or is it because I want God to be glorified by my ministry to them? And that doesn't just have to be at the dinner table. That's in our ministries. That's all over the place. Are we putting payment aside and inviting those that cannot repay us into our lives? Now, as I was breaking this down, aside from just the dinner table, I started to think through the different things. So in relationships, what do I look for? Ever, ever have one of those awkward conversations uh, where you show up to a party of some sort and either you brought a gift or they brought a gift, but you didn't both bring a gift? 
and you, you wonder, like, uh, do I give them the gift? Have you ever left a gift in the car because you were actually embarrassed to give somebody a gift because it turned out it wasn't a gift-giving thing, but you brought one anyway, and you left it in the Have you ever done that? Th- these awkward social things are usually based on this idea of repayment. That if I give them a gift and they don't have anything for me in return, that, that'll make them awkward. But then if I don't bring a gift and they give me one, well, then I don't have anything to repay them with. The, these little social things are, are built on this, this prideful attitude that we should receive repayment. What about just sympathy in a relationship? Have you ever, have you ever had a really sympathetic friend before? The person, people are just really good at just understanding your situation. Maybe we'll even call it empathy because that's the nicer word. But empathy. So they really understand your situation. You like to hang out with that person because you can share with them and they just get you. And so you find yourself spending all your time with that person. Well, are you there in that relationship to glorify God? Or are you there in that relationship to receive payment for your efforts? Okay, so if I'm not already convicted enough, I've got like six more categories here. So your marriage. How many marriage counselors do we have in here? A lot, right? There's like, there's probably five, ten marriage counselors in here at least. I recognize a couple. Um, And I have great respect for all of you that do this. Um, Because I remember what my marriage was like when I got marriage counseling. And and it was a, a wonderful experience to go through that process. And I'll even share just a a little bit further. Our marriage counseling was so successful that we came back after we got married and did it again. Um, Because it turns out there's a lot to learn after you get married. So I would encourage that. But as you're looking at your marriage, what types of payments do you require? Do you serve your spouse without any expectation of repayment? Do you clear the table? without any expectation of repayment? Do you compliment them? Do you go out of your way to love them? Do you allow your spouse to pursue their dreams and callings in life without expectation of repayment? Do you act and live in a way that does not expect repayment for affection? if all marriages worked this way, this is like the ideal marriage, right? If, If you honestly, if both parties in a marriage could say that they honestly act in a selfless way without any expectation of repayment, divorce would not be a thing. Because what would you get divorced about? What's the number one thing you get divorced about? Well, my expectations weren't being met. They didn't love me right or well or whatever. If we got rid of the expectation of repayment, marriage would work. Okay, how about ministry? And ministry, right? We're all godly, devoted people trying to bring the gospel to Thailand. I'm sure a promotion has never been considered. I'm sure that any sort of accolades, rewards, recognition for your efforts, support raising, people, people you probably never even think about that, right? Do we expect repayment for our sacrifices here? Do we expect repayment for our efforts? The reality is, is we do. 
And we take those things into our hands, our own hands, and we try and achieve our own repayment. Now, I am not saying that fundraising is a bad thing. What I'm saying is, is that if you expect funding as repayment for your ministry, you are in a tough place. What about visibility? What about comforts? I deserve to be comfortable. I deserve for my kids to go to an international school. I deserve to go to an international church. I'm here sacrificing. I deserve repayment. Now, are any of those things bad in and of themselves? Absolutely not. But if you are seeking those things above what God has called you to in life, that is sin. If you are here in Chiang Mai ministering when you should be in Central Africa simply because things are easier here, then you are putting your repayment above what God has called you to. There's this thing I always wish, you know. As an administrator, my prayer is always, please don't send me to India. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Thailand is hard enough keeping all my boxes checked and everything in my boxes is really challenging here. Please, God, don't send me to India. That's what you owe me for doing this. Right? There are always harder places to be. Places, places where we receive less repayment, where we receive less comfort. What about at church? We need Sunday school volunteers. This is my chance to guilt you all into it. No, I'm not going to do that. But honestly, why do you serve? Why do you teach? Why do you preach? Why do you lead worship? Do you do it for praise? Do you do it for accolades? Do you do it because it's something that you enjoy doing and you get a lot of enjoyment out of it? Or do you do it because God has called you to do it? Do you do it because it's a way that you can serve? Do you do it because it's a way that you can minister? I have a feeling the church global would be a very, very healthy place if we took repayment out of the equation. If people just showed up and volunteered and participated, and you don't have to volunteer and participate, maybe God isn't calling you to that. That is fine. But if you are ignoring it because it's too difficult and the repayment isn't high enough, then that's an issue you need to work out with God. What about kids? Are kids even safe? <laughs> no, they're not. Have you ever heard that thing, living vicariously through your children? It's your repayment, right? If they're successful, you're a successful parent. You've put all these years of effort, 18 years, into perfecting your child to the best of your ability. And then it's their chance to repay you. Right? To go off and make you proud and go to college and get a really nice job and become a huge supporter of your ministry, right? You're expecting, yeah, yeah. I didn't say it was evil. But if that is your method, your mode, your reality to how you parent your children, if you are looking for repayment, you will not receive it. They will disappoint you. How do I know that? Because they're human and they're like me and I disappointed my parents and my parents disappointed their parents and their parents disappointed their parents. Why? 
Because we should have no expectation of repayment. That is not the way that Christ treats us, and it is not the way that we should treat our children. When you go to sports events, and you see that parent on the sideline that's just yelling and screaming, and, and they're invested in their kid, and their kid is going to be the best at this sport, and they're going to they're go off and be a professional, and how dare you stand in their way, because that child is living a dream that that parent never got to realize themselves. That parent is seeking repayment for the way that they parent. We don't get repayment for things like that on earth. We're not supposed to. Our relationship with Christ is selfless, not selfish. What about just in general the way you parent? The way you train your kids to apologize and reconcile? When they do something to hurt you, do you do you honestly just want that pound of flesh? Do you want to just like toss them out the window and just see them just be frustrated and see them be miserable because it makes you feel better because they've hurt you? I've seen that happen. Kids that go off and make horrible choices and their parents decide that they want to make their children pay. And so they throw them out of the family. They make them unwelcome in their home. Because that parent is expecting repayment for their efforts. The more I look into this, the more I realize that this is a significant problem in the church, in us as Christians. Somehow we've allowed this repayment thing to stay a function of the way that we as a Christian body work. And so I would ask you, how do you remove that from your life? I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is that payment is coming. Judgment is coming. And there are two sides of the aisle on that. Luke 11 says, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you, for you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. In Luke 20, 46, it says that they will receive the greater condemnation. If you pursue the things of this world, if you look for payment in the things of this world, we have a guarantee in Scripture that you will be compensated with exactly what you are owed. That's terrifying. The reality is is that every day of our lives, every minute of our existence, we are repaid infinitely, infinitely more than what we are owed. The fact that you are alive and breathing, the fact that you have children, the fact that you have ministry to sink yourself into and love others, the fact that God has provided for you in a way that you can even be here this morning is infinitely more than what we deserve. Find repayment in that. Ask yourself, in this moment, in this moment, do I feel repaid? 
Or am I looking for somehow for God to balance that scale? For him to give me what I'm owed, what I deserve? It is clear what payment we will receive if that is the path we go down. Fortunately, there's another side. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout for the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. As you're driving down this path, there are signs everywhere. Caution, payment ahead, judgment ahead. And as we drive down this road, are we heeding those signs? Who is that person sitting at your front door waiting to be healed, waiting to be helped? What is the dinner situation that you are constantly vying for position and looking for reward? Who do you invite to your dinner table? Who do you invite into your life? The reality is is it does not matter if it doesn't count for Christ. It will be wasted in this world. It will be burned up as ashes and gone. And then you will have an eternity to remember the choice that you made. I don't think that the problem that the church has these days is a moral issue. I think that it's a heart issue. I think that it's a soul issue. I think the problem is is that we expect from God what we are not willing to give ourselves. We expect repayment. And so I would encourage you, please keep me accountable. Be my brothers and sisters in Christ. Be accountable to each other. Live selflessly. Nobody owes you anything. Every minute of every day, you are repaid in full. If you choose not to accept that repayment, your payment is coming. As I look at this scripture, I don't know about you, but I feel convicted. I feel miserably sinful. 
But in the depths, way off, the light at the end of the tunnel, I also see a light. This is not possible on your own. Back to abiding. You will fail. Absolutely. Across the board, we've had thousands of years of examples to teach us that you will fail. If you invite Christ into your life and you abide in him, you get your sustenance from him. You exist within his will. You go to him daily for your fill. If you do that, there's a chance that we'll be successful. But you know what? If you do that and you still fail miserably, in heaven you will be rewarded. That's the path that I think I'm on right now. I'm going to try real hard and I'm going to fail miserably in my own power. And I'm going to constantly be reminded that Christ is the only way that I'm going to do this. And then on that day, when I die, I sure hope my kids, whoever survives me, probably my wife, chances are good, I hope that my ministry to them is a life well lived without expectation of repayment. Because I will be repaid in heaven. I think that's the point that Christ was making here. I would encourage you to go home and sink your teeth into this scripture. Talk about it in your home groups. Talk about it in your families. The next time Christmas comes up and your kids deserve all sorts of presents, this is a great time to talk about repayment. Birthdays, all these teachable moments. Are those things bad in and of themselves? No. When we put them before Christ, they are. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.